Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. This episode, we're going to talk about emotional labour. Uh, you either know what emotional labour is because you do it all the time, or you don't. Um, and so right at the top here, I think it's probably quite good to give some examples and sort of some definitions of emotional labour. Emotional labour is when, it's kind of when someone dumps all their feelings on you. But it's also things like, if you're in a partnership or in a shared house and you're the person in charge of making sure all the bills are turned in on time, if you're always the person who has to ask other people to tidy. This can happen within relationships and within friendships and just within share house situations. But also emotional labour is constantly being aware and allowing for other people's feelings. And as you might expect, it's something that women disproportionately do in the world. Because if you think about it, right, like, we're sort of socialised to be nice. We're socialised to think about how other people feel about things. And it's particularly interesting to me as an autistic person to go, like, realise that trait within me that I, despite the fact that I cannot pick up on social cues a lot of the time, I am constantly thinking about how other people might feel, how they could feel if they're not speaking to me. Does that mean they're angry? And how do I best sort of alleviate those emotions? And that in its way, is also emotional labour. It's putting, it's doing work with your feelings for other people. Um, is there anything you want to add there, Serena? Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think emotional labour is a poem that I've seen, and oh, I'll probably incorrectly quote this, but it said, I asked my dad to read an article about emotional labour. He turns to me and he says, can you just explain what it says to me? <laughs> which is just like quite just a beautiful bow wrapped uh, example of emotional labor. The fact that it, it, yeah, it's just a situation where like you have to do some kind of work that is not physical um, for other people, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So emotional labor, just like any other kind of work is, you know, something that everyone should do and everyone should be, hopefully um should try and be reasonably good at but it is definitely a uh, a phenomenon in society where women especially are expected to do the majority of the emotional labor and that's when problems can happen because then you know it's like when you do physical work you get burnt out you get tired um and that sucks <laughs> yeah and it's it's really not a new idea so it's been talked about a lot more recently like i think there's been some really good articles on half as bizarre and in the guardian that talk about emotional labor and how particularly women or people perceived as women tend to bear the brunt of that but this idea like as a whole has been around since like 19 like uh 1983 essentially is a concept of being in the so, like, if you work in hospitality and you're constantly sort of, like, being aware of other people's feelings so that they have a good experience at your restaurant, at your hotel, at your whatever, like, that's emotional labor as well. And that's kind of, like, more legitimate than, like, the ongoing sort of emotional labor, particularly when that's not reciprocated. So I think, like, often in relationships there's a fair balance of emotional labor. And when I say relationship, I'm referring to both, like, romantic and platonic relationships right like there's often a balance of emotional labor where like you share stuff someone shares stuff back you support each other through things and that's really really healthy and good what's not healthy and good is when there's an imbalance there when 
someone always shares like their feelings to you and you never share that back whether you feel like if you can't or they just don't seem that interested in it um when you are for example like essentially the household manager and that's never kind of recognized when you do a lot of the cleaning and your partner cleans one thing and expects to be praised for it that's an element of emotional labor as well and particularly one that I've heard a lot about um through my family and friends and it's frustrating it's exhausting it's particularly something that affects and I'm just going to keep hammering this point home it's particularly something that affects women because like we're just conscious of this all the time. And I'm going to take a minute and grab out. So what I've started doing is every time I resent performing emotional labor for someone in my life, I write it down. And the Mm. idea is that I will see patterns and I will stop doing the things that contribute to those patterns. Or I will like communicate to whoever is like involved in that when it happens again and be like, Hey, actually this is kind of uncool. I don't want to feel this way. Can we discuss this? So hopefully getting better friendships. That is the goal of life. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to read a couple of these out. Feel free to comment, Serena. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I let you explain my PhD to me. Oh, dear. <laughs> when you told me, a student who hadn't been paid in six months, how performance appraisals at your 50k plus a job made you nervous. And that's just, like, not being conscious of how things you say affect other people's feelings. Um, The same guy who said that also did... When you said, I never learned how to sew, my mum does it. And I didn't call you out. (laughs) And then there's a lot of examples, like, things like... um, So I had a cancer scare late last year, and a lot of particularly men in my life who I told felt bad told me they felt bad and then like either expected me to comfort them or I did comfort them because they felt so bad oh my gosh that's a really common one (laughs) um that's a yeah (laughs) the thing where it's like you confess open up be vulnerable share your feelings to a friend and then suddenly for some reason you feel bad for um burdening them with your problems um, or they just explicitly say, like, yeah. now that you've told me that, I feel bad. So, like, I had a friend come around once when I was, like, having a really bad depressive cycle and, like, I was sort of crying and he was trying to cheer me up and he was like, mm. look, um, tell me about some of your achievements. And I, yeah, I did. And then he was mm. like, oh, now I feel really bad. And it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, thanks. <laughs> I just... And, like, that sort of has a lot of um, similar themes to uh, ring theory, which is the sort of idea about how to uh, comfort people in a crisis. So, essentially, like, whoever is having the crisis or is most affected by the crisis is the person at the centre. Um, and then, like, in the very next circle is the name of the per- is the person who's next closest to the crisis. And in the next circle, the next closest people. And so, uh, yes. from the centre, it sort of goes out like a kind of bullseye shape. And the rule of ring theory is that you comfort in and you dump out. So if Mm. someone is having a cancer scare and you feel bad, you do not tell that person. You do not tell that person's partner or their closest friends. You go and you talk to someone outside, someone who is a ring outside of you. Because, Mm. like, it's just this kind of super unfair way of approaching things. If someone dies, you don't tell the people in that family how bad you feel 
You go mm. and you talk to someone else. That's a good rule of thumb. Oh, God. It, and so few people know it. It just mm. blows my mind because it's just like, even having to tell someone that it's inappropriate that they're dumping on you when, like, you're the person having the crisis, that's, like, work as well and it's awkward and you're like, I'm having a crisis. Can I afford to lose a friend? And the answer is yes if they're a terrible friend. Um, and it's important to remember as well that that's not the same thing as expressing like empathy for someone to say like you feel bad I also feel bad do you want to feel bad together and eat an entire chocolate cake like that is very different to saying wow this thing is making me feel really bad and it's kind of nuanced and like again like because I'm autistic like I feel particularly able to say like that's definitely nuanced and that's kind of a difficult Mm -hmm. thing to get but when in doubt do not (laughs) (laughs) and it's just it's so frustrating what are what are some terrible examples of emotional labor in your life Serena that you can do sufficiently anonymized (laughs) sufficiently anonymized (laughs) Mm. um a lot of it is just the whole obliviousness because like when you get these situations of imbalanced emotional labor, nine times out of ten, or I kind of want to say all the time, the other party has no idea they're doing that. And obviously they don't mean to do that, but it's because they have no idea they're doing something that's kind of shitty, it's very difficult to explain to them that they're doing something that's kind of shitty. So you, you get a lot of situations where it's a lot of, like, listen to my problems but also your problems are irrelevant kind of thing, which is a, is a common thing. Um, another common thing that I hear about a lot um, in terms of uh, heterosexual couples, I think I read a tweet online or something, um, someone's husband like never did any housework and one day for Valentine's Day or for their anniversary or something, uh, he proposed that he was going to do the housework that she normally did. And what happened was that he basically just did it all very, very badly and didn't do much of it and then expected praise. And then she had to do it again. And when she expressed frustration that she had to like go and redo all the shitty work, he started complaining and being like, why didn't you just tell me exactly what to do and I'll do it (laughs) without realizing that that whole management of, you know, making sure you're doing the right housework at the right time, um, doing it correctly, that's labor as well. Yeah, being conscious of, like, the sheet cycle and the vacuuming cycle and all of that, and it's just like, just... (sighs) Yeah, and it's small things, right? Which is why it's so difficult to raise this with someone in your life. Because you feel bad for raising it. You Like, I have been in a situation where it's like... I want to raise the fact that I've been performing more emotional labor, but I can hear myself sounding petty and I can't stand to hear myself sound petty. So usually what happens is that I'll just, I just won't raise it at all. And it's difficult to kind of explain how things like build up as well. So you're like, you've done this tiny thing that if you did it once, I would not give a shit about, but you've done it like 20 times and now I want to murder you. (laughs) But it's also just, like, I get very frustrated with how unwilling typically cis men in my life, and, like, I'm just going to, like, not all men myself a little bit here, Mm. because, like, I have some excellent male friends who I just, like, have never asked emotional labor of me, like, have 
actively defended me when there's been like some kind of underlying misogyny bullshit going on, like really mm. good male friends. Yeah. And when I get upset by the amount of emotional labor that other male friends ask of me, I go and hang out with those boys because I'm just like, I don't want to be angry at all, man. You're nice. <laughs> um, but it's also just like the whole concept of friendships is that you're nice to each other and you do nice things for each other. And so, mm. like, even having to explain the fact that, like, why something upsets us is just kind of, like, bullshit as well. It's a little bit, like, hysterical <laughs> woman. And, like, it makes me think of, like, a conversation I had with my dad. Like, I wouldn't say I have an excellent relationship with my family. I think I have a good relationship with my family. And I think we sort of treat and see each other as adults now. But a few years ago, we really didn't. And mm. I just sort of had this conversation with my dad where I'm like, I want you to tell me that you're proud of me more. And he was like, well, I am. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I want you to tell me because when you don't, I get sad. And he's like, okay. And then he did. And it was just like, this is much better now. Mm. And I feel like we can go into other relationships just going like, hey, this is what I need to feel good about this friendship, this um, romantic relationship, this whatever. Mm. And the other party shouldn't be like, oh, why? This is bullshit. Oh, I do the housework sometimes. I garden. Murr. Like, <laughs> just this whole idea that you have to provide a reason for why it's legitimate that you want or need something is kind of ridiculous. And it's so difficult to navigate as well. Because I think a big part of us expects relationships in general just to work and it's really easy to forget that people in general all relationships need everyone to put in work it's not just something that we sit back and uh, enjoy and reap the benefits off and then forget about it it's something that we have to actively work towards and this is something that I've like I learned quite early on with like a long-term relationship was that it's not a bad thing to put work into a relationship, whether that be a platonic one or a romantic one. Because it's like, I don't know, I do think a, a big part of like the social narrative around relationships, friendships, romantic ones, whatever, is that it's easy and that it just like falls into place and it just works. But sometimes it's, you know what, I care for this person. I'm going to put into the work to show them that I care. And that's not a bad thing that you're putting in the work. In fact, it's a good thing. And in fact, I think everyone should be more mindfully, I don't want to say the word working because it just sounds so cold. But it, it is that, right? Like it is yeah. sort of saying, you know, when we have an issue, I want us to discuss it and work towards how we can both be happy at the end of this. Yeah, like, exactly. I had a ripping fight with one of my best friends um, at the beginning of last year and I was very upfront with how I felt. And I was like, this is how I feel. This is what I think we should discuss to fix it. And she just like, didn't want to discuss it. Mm. Yeah, and she was just like, I'd rather we weren't friends. And it's like, well, that sucks because apparently I was willing to put in the work. Mm. Um, and I mean, like, that's fine if she didn't value me as a friend, but when you value someone as a friend and like not at all sort of casting aspersions on her decision or her feelings or whatever here, but like as a general rule, when you value someone as a friend, being willing to put in the work, to put in the emotional labor when it's being reciprocated, like 
to work together to fix issues that you have or like ways that you communicate poorly. Like that's really valuable. And it makes mm. often your friendship stronger because you understand each other better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I've pulled up my favorite reductress article. Mm-hmm. Uh, woman decides it's too much emotional labor to describe the concept of emotional labor. Oh, that hits home. <laughs> this is my problem with a lot of emotional labor imbalances is that I find like that exact title is like my life. It is just too tiring. To, like even thinking about describing it to someone who doesn't quite understand it is just tiring to think about. And, and I'm not sure how to like go go around that. I don't know either, because I recently had a situation where I was trying to explain to a friend, like, what emotional labour was and why I was kind of pissy at him that, like, I had to smooth over all the fights he had with people, Hmm. Um, which is ridiculous. Uh, And he was like, but I don't understand why that's a problem. Like, and just Hmm. sort of pulled this line where he was like, well, if you don't want to do it, why do you do it? And it's just like, oh, my God, (laughs) I'm going to set fire to you in your sleep. (laughs) no jury of my peers would convict me um (laughs) it's exhausting yeah no the the problem is like they just don't see it and like they have the best of intentions and they don't see that they're doing something that's kind of shitty and even explaining to them why it's kind of shitty is making them feel more shitty get more defensive perhaps blind them even more to what they're doing so it's like so many situations i've been in my life where i've just opted (laughs) to just like be not happy (laughs) yeah that's those kind of situations and just like give up trying to explain it because like I have had situations of trying to explain that thing and it usually doesn't go well because it's like no I I know you're not you know trying to be shitty I know but it's just how do I put the words to beam the information to your brain yeah it's it's really tough the okay so to cycle back to housework for a second when someone does housework shittily Particularly if they're in a heterosexual relationship and they're the man in that heterosexual relationship. We fucking know what you're doing, right? Like, I have pulled that so many times with my parents where I've just been like, oh no, I'm just really bad at gardening. Oh, don't make me do it. Oh, I'm really terrible at this. Like, I used to do that, like, in my workplace when I worked retail. I'd just be like, oh, I guess I'm just really not good at this, guys. Like, oh, someone else had better do it. Like, it isn't a trick. You're not tricking us when you do this. Like, (laughs) I just, and it absolutely blows my mind that, like, people legitimately pull this. And, like, it reminds me of, like, a conversation I had with a male friend had come over and I was really stressed. And he was like, what can I do to help? And I'm like, look, can you do the vacuuming? Because, like, I'm trying to study really hard, but the house also needs to be vacuumed. And he looked at me with this incredible disgust (laughs) and was like, no, not that. (laughs) And it's just, like, okay. <laughs> this perception of, like, there's still this incredible perception of particular types of work as women's work, right? Mm. And it it is housework. Like, if I'd asked him to build a fucking shed, I bet he would have been like, yeah, okay, I'll build a shed. Like, <laughs> oh, go blow something up. All right, great. Oh, masculine. <laughs> but actually, like, living in a clean house is nice. And everyone contributes to that. Mm. <laughs> Um, oh, hold on. I have some statistics. I'll see if I can find them. Mm-hmm. They're on 
my bookshelf maybe. So this is from sort of Delusions of Gender by Cordelia Fine. Cordelia won a, oh, the London Royal Society Book Award, I think that's what it's called, for her second book, Testosterone Rex, which sort of is along similar lines. Um, she's a professor at the University of Melbourne. Uh, she is my hero, <laughs> and I love her. <laughs> so in families with children in which both spouses work full-time, women do about as twice as much childcare and housework as men, the notorious second shift. Um, you might think that even if this isn't quite fair, it's still, you know, rational. When one person earns more than the other, then he, it's most likely a he, enjoys greater bargaining power at the trade union negotiations that become their marriage for some. <laughs> In line with this unromantic logic, as a woman's financial contribution approaches that of her husband, her housework decreases. It doesn't become equitable, just less unequal, but only up until the point where her earnings equal his. After that, when she starts to earn more than him, Something very curious starts to happen. The more she earns, the more housework she does. Huh. And this is reflected in Australian Women, which is in The Wife Drought, which uh, Annabelle Crabbe in The Wife Drought definitely puts it forward as being potentially trying to make up for the fact that she's just, like, when women earn more than men, men get really mad about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very curious to me. And, like, particularly because, like, I tend to enter whatever relationship I enter with the same mindset and it's definitely caused a lot more friction when I'm dating men than when I'm dating women or non-binary people. But yeah, I sort of like take the point, it's like, well, if I if I am smarter than you, then that is a true thing, regardless of what your gender is. Like, mm -hmm. and men get really mad about that. And women and non-binary people that I've dated have been like, you're fucking fab, win it. <laughs> cool. That's so interesting, though. I, I wouldn't have guessed, but it makes perfect sense when you explain it, that women who earn more than the male partners will do more housework it's described as sadly comic data which yeah fair. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and definitely something that's sort of gone into detail both in delusions of gender and testosterone ranks is the fact that like there's actually not really a difference in how um men women and everything in between like there's not a difference in how we process emotions mm. um we're just taught differently we're socialized differently and there was that tweet that's been going around facebook and, like, this is not something I would ever recommend doing because it is kind of, like, breaking the bounds of consent. But, like, if you slip a finger up a straight man's butthole during sex, you'll suddenly realise he actually understands consent, ongoing consent, and implied consent. They just pretend to be confused when it's your body. Right, yeah. It's just like, oh, yeah. Three real. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I can absolutely see... Like, I can understand the pressure that men are under to earn more than their partners. I can totally see that. Their family, their friends all might expect them to earn more, and if they don't, it's like a failing, a personal failing, rather than just, this is just money for work, and the economy values different work differently, and that has nothing to do with your, you know, personal value as a human being. But it's also just, like, it's so much of a hangover from when married women weren't allowed to work. Hmm. You know, like, one of the originating reasons of why women get paid less than men is when women were graciously allowed to enter the workforce, they were typically single women, and they were paid a pittance because they only had to subsist themselves. 
Whereas men were generally helping a whole family. So they generally had a wife, they had kids. If they had elderly parents, particularly their mother, they also cared for them. So men got paid a lot more because it's like, well, you're supporting all of these people. Even when you look in science, often men are getting paid like quite a high amount of money for like professorships or research positions because there was the assumption that their wife would be doing the typing, would be writing things up and would be assisting with their experiments. Hmm. And when you see that, you're just like, well... But now it's different. (laughs) Can't assume that anymore. (laughs) And it just makes me, like, so frustrated that, like, very few people look at the sort of gender pay gap today. I mean, not only do a lot of people sort of not know the history of where that comes from, which, like, at the time was kind of understandable. Like, the Mm. views about married women not being allowed to work and like in the Australian public service it was a very long time before married women could have jobs and often women would like hide their wedding rings before work because they like still wanted to keep their job because it turns out women are smart and like challenges during the day that aren't just housework Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. other women do not and we respect all of them Mm -hmm. um but now it's different (laughs) and now it's just like not only does it cost a lot to just exist in the world cool job capitalism but like we cannot assume anyone sort of family makeup the kind of groups that they're supporting necessarily like mm-hmm. there's a lot of cultures in which it's assumed you'd support your elderly parents and one of those one of the cultures that doesn't assume you support your elderly parents is like white people mm. and that's a really weird thing to have conversations about because like when talking to people before, I've sort of, like, made the comment that, like, you know, I'm aware that my parents are old and at some point we might need to, like, rejig the house they live in or they might have really high medical expenses and while I trust them to have savings for that, I also want to be in a financial position where I can support them. And the response mm. I get from, like, all of my white friends is just like, but why do you do that? And it's just like, because... Because they're my parents. <laughs> yeah. They raised me? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's... I don't know. And I want to, like, find some way to turn this into some kind of economical argument. Like, you are, like, you're losing good, I don't know, employees by assuming these things of your employees rather than just having good general rules, treating everyone like human beings. And I mean, we we have that economics argument, right? Um, yeah. Particularly coming from STEM. Like, we know about the leaky pipeline, that there are brilliant female researchers who bail the heck out of science because, mm. it, I mean, like, it's a terrible environment to be a woman in. Like, if you make yep. any kind of sexual harassment complaint, you're never going to get another job worldwide. I'm entering mm. industry, and if I make a sexual harassment complaint, it might just, like, ruin my job in Australia, but I can always fuck off to another country. Like, <laughs> academia is worldwide. Like, women yeah. are leaving science in droves like there aren't really high-powered women in silicon valley but also we know that women are really good at doing stuff yeah of course and we've talked about this in the um the pay gap episode like i have had people say to me like oh if there really was a gender pay gap surely companies would hire more women because it's cheaper no oh my goodness no (laughs) i mean very very solid economic argument but also maybe just like hire children Oh my goodness, no. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, things like female surgeons lose, like, there are fewer deaths, there are fewer, like, critical Mm. um, situations for female surgeons. 
And you can look at that data and say, like, well, clearly women are quite good at being surgeons, but you can also look at that data and draw the arguably correct conclusion that because surgery is such a, like, god-awful environment, only the very best female surgeons survive Mm. and stay in surgery and actually, Mm. like, can continue. There's a bit of survivorship bias going on there. Absolutely. Yeah. But it means, like, even if you take the next 10% of people, right, like, even if you create an environment where, like, not just the top 5% of female surgeons and the top 20% of male surgeons, but the top 15% of both got, like, got through and became, like, practicing surgeons, you'd still have a better environment for patients. And, like, that's yeah. kind of the same case in every industry. Yeah. Oh, I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... It does frustrate me, the survivorship bias of it all, because um, when you look at, I mean, an industry like tech, in which I work in, or um, the VC industry, which is, I don't know, tech adjacent, let's be honest, <laughs> at this <laughs> point of time, um, the women at the very top, they often say a lot of frustrating things that go against um, what we should be doing to encourage more diversity in our industry. And they're saying that because they survived through all that bullshit by um, their own strategy of being okay with that bullshit, which is like, you know, good for you, but also very bad for everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, it's frustrating because it's like, I want to support these women who are in very like high positions of power um, because I want to see more of that. But at the same time, a lot of uh, a lot of the comments that they'll often repeat are harmful and damaging because they've had to behave a specific way. They've had to um, signal specific things to their very very male counterparts and very white counterparts um, that you know they belong in this group, and so they got to be accepted into this group by a very specific strategy that can often be harmful if carried to everyone else. So it's it's frustrating. It's like, it's like, go you, but also, shh. Yeah. And I think you, you might've seen the, um, the post in, uh, one of the feminist Facebook groups we're both a part of, uh, from a woman who is, I think going into business or works in business. And she was like, you know, how do I bridge the juxtaposition between like maybe dressing more masculine to be taken more seriously? And like one Mm. of the examples she used was Helen Clark. And it's like, I mean, Helen Clark's my idol and she's incredible. And like, Mm. okay, sure. Whatever. Like the history of calling her mannish, like maybe let's not be like, Oh, she's so mask. Um, or, you know, more feminine and sort of approach by feminine base. And it's just like, man, just wear clothes that are comfortable. Like I'm very lazy. So I'm not going to go to my fancy new job in the business district with, like, a full face of makeup. But that's mm. literally the end of my reasoning. I'm not like, oh, I want to be taken seriously. <laughs> I'm like, I would like ten more minutes of sleep, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you do, you do feel that pressure, though. Absolutely. And, like, yeah. I'm probably going to feel a lot of it in my first week. Um, yeah. But I really like being asleep. It is good. <laughs> yeah. It's also things like... That very fine line between being pretty enough to be listened to and not mm. so pretty that you're not taken seriously. Yeah, very, very fine line. <laughs> and it's it's a difficult line to walk. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
but I also think it's one that most women and a lot of non-binary people who are more femme adjacent will be conscious of Mm. and men just don't even think about. No, sometimes I do wonder, like I'll wake up in the morning and wonder like what it would be like to live today, just like have everyone just believe that I was a dude just for one day and just to see like what things I don't have to think about anymore. Yeah. Because I can't even imagine. There's quite a few people on Twitter who have done that, isn't there? Probably, yeah. Um, And I have a friend who, for a while, changed her LinkedIn profile picture and name to be, you know, essentially the male version of her name mm. and to be a picture of a guy that she got, like, off Google. Mm. And weirdly, suddenly, she stopped being propositioned so much on LinkedIn. How bizarre. Yeah. That's so weird that also, like, as a side note, LinkedIn as, like, a... Way to meet people. Weird. Dudes, please stop doing this. <laughs> oh, yeah, God, no, it's very bizarre. Um, very weird. I once got a message that was like, hey, do you want to, like, go out for coffee? And I'm like, maybe, who are you? <laughs> and eventually just ended up with me being like, sorry, no, I don't know who you are. And whatever you're doing for your business has no relevancy to, like, what I'm doing, so no. Yeah. And you, yeah. on LinkedIn, you can't, like, immediately go, new phone, who dis? Because yeah. they might be someone important in your industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm hopeful that my sort of foray into the business world will not be as sort of fraught with excessive emotional labor and pressure to conform to particular beauty ideals, but not too much, just a little bit. I want to be taken mm-hmm. seriously. Um, and I'm hoping <laughs> that I will be sort of slightly insulated because I had like I've submitted my PhD, mm. and every time I have a bad thought, I'll just be able to be like, "No, fuck you! I'm going to be a doctor." Right? Yes. <laughs> and I mean, like, not everyone can do that. Absolutely. Um, and it can be a really tough like environment to be in. And I absolutely don't. I don't want to shame or make it feel like I think any worse of women who bow to those pressures because they're pretty big fucking pressures. Yep. Um, Mm -hmm. And, like, I just, I feel you, and I respect that. I'm just kind of hoping that I will be a little bit insulated and that part of that will be just, like, I don't have to prove myself as much anymore. That is the dream. I don't know. I still feel like I, even after having a job for four years now, I still feel rather clueless (laughs) (laughs) about how to navigate that kind of world. I feel like, personally, I've been very lucky and I have personally been quite well insulated from a lot of those expectations just because I work in quite a nice environment Mm. and the specific department, like, digital is quite casual, the dress code is quite casual, and, yeah, like, you'll you'll see a lot of the more subtle microaggressions all the time, but it's much better... Like, I couldn't imagine myself working in another department where everyone's, like, in suits and heels. Um, It just feels so alien to me. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder if I could could be that person, but I'm kind of glad I don't have to answer that question anytime soon. Yeah, because, I mean, there's a risk in being that person that you then also have to be the person that, like, remembers everyone's birthdays and shit like that. Yeah, and stuff, like, I don't know, it feels weird... Imagining being a person who spends so much 
mental resource on understanding office politics because it's something you have to do to survive. Um, like I'm pretty happy being rather ignorant of most of that kind of stuff, but I assume in a lot of other places, you know, you, you can't. I just also like, why are people not nice to each other? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the frustrating thing for me. Cause like in every workplace I've been in, Pretty much, like, my immediate team, and I'm not going to speak to the larger workplaces on record, but, like, my immediate team has just been really nice to each other and has supported mm. each other in the work they've done. And I've heard about, like, terrible labs to do research in where people, like, purposefully ruin each other's experiments. And it's like, that sounds awful. And, and that sounds anti-science to me. Yeah, I mean, it super does. And then even in, like, the sort of business places I've been in, it's just, like, it's nice. We support each other because Hmm. generally, like, when you work somewhere, you want to make the business do good. And so Hmm. everyone is working towards the same goal of making the business do good. Yeah. Um, Sort of collaborative approaches to things are always more, like, successful than competitive approaches to things. Yeah. I mean, and, like, I've never personally experienced a really, really bad workplace, but, I mean, I've definitely heard a lot of horror stories and it's it's strange to me because like the thought of spending so much mental resource on kind of defending yourself from this weird obstacle course of interpersonal politics it's like isn't that mental resource that you could be using to do your work yeah I mean I think the closest I've sort of come to experiencing that is when the Murdoch Children's is big enough for me to say it was there um is when I've had friends at work want to date other friends at work And then that Mm -hmm. break quite bad. Mm. And it's just like, but this was stupid. This was a bad choice that you were making. And now it turns out it was a bad choice. Why why is anyone surprised by this? Like, (laughs) did did no one learn the base rule that is don't screw the crew? Like, you do not do the thing. (laughs) Yeah, those situations are always tricky because it's like, it's it's such a personal issue. um, And it's not something you can really, it's not necessarily appropriate to raise at work. Yeah. Like, it's not necessarily appropriate for me to go up to someone and be like, so your dating life or whatever. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's difficult in research institutions that have students as well, because there is that very blurred line between study and work for a lot of students. Mm. Um, And I have always sort of tried to treat uh, where I've done my PhD as more of a workplace than a study place, but also I swear like a lot. So <laughs> that, that's where that line blurs. <laughs> I, mean, I think swearing is just another form of expression and communication. And Yeah, but I do also want to recognize that like, I'm sort of going into a more international company and there are definitely yeah. like cultural differences. Because mm. like, I know in Australia and New Zealand we're pretty chill about basically yep. every word. Yep. Possibly... <laughs> terribly so in Australia. Possibly too many. <laughs> yeah, Queensland has a lot of uh, places that are called N-word something. So, oh, wow. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah, so Australia is maybe a little bit too chill about that, but I am sort of like conscious of the fact that um, British people particularly like <laughs> flinch a little bit when you use some words, and it's like, oh, honeys, oh, my children. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Australia, New Zealand. Welcome to Australia, um, dick. (laughs) Yeah, New Zealand had um, two rivers that had those kinds of names, and I think they they changed them sometime uh, two years ago. 
Um, so yeah, Queensland, I think, is in the process of removing those. Um, in August 2017, in May and August 2017, um, quite a few of them were removed, but I suspect oh, um, there are still a couple, although I am just skimming this article, so... Mm. Mm. Oh, these are all very bad. Yikes. I get so bad secondhand embarrassment from those kinds of things. And from Australia as a country, to be fair. I mean, a little, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like, back to the workplace thing. It's it's definitely like a concentrated kind of situation, but it's it's an analogy for what everyone kind of has to navigate through in general society. And, like, a lot of the times I'll get, like, tired of thinking about um, all the different workplace obstacles that, like, I've heard of, that my friends have to go through, that I sometimes have to go through. But in a lot of ways, it really is an analogy for all the obstacle courses that we have to go through just in general life. Yeah. And, I mean, like, even when I think about – so the job I'm starting in about a week, um, I was actually like confirmed in like April last year. But even when I think back to applying to workplaces and like reading up on workplace, when I looked at interviews, I read the workplace gender equality agency report on everywhere I applied to, to make sure that they like would pay me the same and promote me at the same rate as men. Mm. I also like made sure that I'd seen employees from that place out for Australia events to make sure that they treat like, gay trans queer people the same like Mm. and because of my privilege like I don't have to look into things like whether the company is secretly a little bit racist I didn't have to look at things like the statistics of people of color that are being promoted within the industry um I think some of which is recorded by the workplace gender equality agency but not all of it um by long shot and that sort of like just these additional steps that I have to do and everyone kind of almost ought to do in order to ensure that they're actually going to be valued in workplaces. And that's kind of bullshit. Like we should just be valued for being good at jobs. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a lot of work that a lot of people can't do because I mean, I know a lot of times it's just like, I just need a job. Yeah. (laughs) I just, I just, I just need a pay rent. Someone please give me a job. Um, so it it's frustrating because it's like it'd be nice to be able to like go through and make sure that the place wherever um, I'm going is going to be good for me. But I feel like for a lot of people, it's just going to be someone give me a job, I'll do whatever because yeah. I need to live. Because hooray, capitalism! I mean, for for a couple of movements. So um, in the state of Victoria, where Melbourne is. Um, there's a movement towards actually getting um, hospitality bosses accountable because there was mm-hmm. a case with the um, the Lucas Group, which own a lot of really fancy-ass restaurants in Melbourne, uh, where a woman alleged that they had were basically not paying her for the hours that she worked. And this all sounded very legitimate. Um, mm. I can't remember like how it was settled, so I don't want to say anything too specific. Um, mm-hmm. But this resulted in a group called Hospo Voice that's sort of like ranking hospitality bosses to ensure they pay people and they don't sexually harass people and they're not secret racists and they're this and they're that. And it's like, okay, that's that's really good, right? Like this is kind of like the same concept that unions came from, right? Mm. But it's also something that's springing up at a time where unions have less and less power when there's less and less buy-in to unions and part of that is just like desperation for work and that's 
that's also like of course impacted by how difficult it is to get unemployment benefit and it's kind of like all of these things are just in this horrible miasma of bad work environmentness and that's really frustrating as someone who's like quite pro-union to watch mm. happen and like I definitely don't have the greatest opinion of the um MTEU because like and again okay so there are some circumstances when it's legit to respond to sort of a comment or a complaint by going hey you know what the best way to fix that would be you should join and then run it and like Mm. that's kind of how I ended up on the Royal Society of Victoria's Council. And I think it was a completely legitimate response to all my complaints because I had a very long list. And <laughs> now I started ticking them off and making the place like better with like incredible help from the rest of the council and the CEO and the team there. I think like I've made a few comments to the NTEU where they've just kind of been like, well, you know, why don't you come to things? Why don't you join up? Why don't you do this? And it's just like, no, you represent me. Like, yeah, mm. I'll join, I'll pay my union fees, but you've also made it pretty clear that you don't care that much about casual workers, which is how I was employed. And also there's like not really, so this is a very scattered thought process for which I apologise, but essentially postdoctoral researchers in Australia only have the capacity to join the NTEU when they're affiliated with a university. This is not the case for every single postdoc researcher in Australia. So there are a lot of independent kind of research hubs, so for example, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, the Murdoch Children's. Um, I think the Peter Doherty is also not affiliated with an institution. And if you do not hold an honorary position um, at an institution, you don't have a union. Hmm. Like, there is no way for your workplace to be protected. I think in an age where, like, firstly, science funding is just down the toilet. Yeah. Um, but also, like, postdoc contracts are getting shorter and shorter and like you're expected to do so much unpaid overtime to not have any access to collective bargaining action or a way to protect that is ridiculous and mm. I don't know if this is something we can necessarily like lay at the feet of the National Tertiary Educators Union but it's definitely something that they are best placed to address because there's not really a basis for unaffiliated postdocs um postdocs who aren't affiliated with an education institution to like get together and form a union because there is such a dramatic oversupply of postdoc like potential postdoctoral researchers that the risk is very high that they would just lose their jobs and be replaced by someone else who's just as good hmm. and that that just really frustrates me i like i love unions like i think they're really really good they got us weekends they got us public holidays they got us like yep. 40 hour work weeks but when they don't work I get so frustrated by that yeah because it's not an argument against having unions in general it's currently in the current situation it's like they don't have enough leveraging power they don't perform as well as they should yeah and like mm. I, I understand things like stances against casualization of jobs but as someone who has only ever been employed by the University of Melbourne on casual contracts I like it. Mm. And I enjoyed having a casual contract. And it's kind of like just And it seems more more like the future of how work looks like it's shaping up to be. So Yeah, I just I think a lot of unions, particularly the ones I've like seen in Australia, can take more nuanced approaches to things. And it's like the overarching theme of this podcast, right, is, oh, it turns out nuance exists. Um, nuance exists! <laughs> should be our new byline. 
<laughs> um, and so to see, it depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to just see like these very firm, hard lines without any like asterisks and footnotes. Yeah, I find very difficult to like unwaveringly support. Yeah. So, to go back to the emotional labor thing. Mm-hmm. Um. So one of my like deepest fears and the fear that follows me around all the time is that I am being unintentionally shitty to people and I just don't, it just hasn't registered. Mm. And when I think about emotional labor and stuff, I think we can all relate to being that person who's performing more emotional labor. But I think it's much harder for us to recognize the situations in which there is an imbalance of emotional labor, but we're the ones who are not doing enough work. Like we're the ones who are sitting back and like letting someone else perform more emotional labor. That's probably impacting them in a difficult way. And that's like my, (laughs) that is like my deepest fear that um, this is something that I'll, well, my generic deep fear is that I would have done something shitty and I just wouldn't have known about Mm. it. Mm. And, um, and no one brought it up, and so I'm just, like, going around being a shitty person with no idea of what I'm doing. So I guess what I kind of want to talk about for the end of this episode is what are some ways that we can check in with ourselves and our friends and to make sure that we're not unduly burdening someone else without even knowing it. So I think the first way to kind of protect against that is to have a varied support network so like Mm. I think often during high school and particularly through university we often have like one group of friends or like a main circle of friends and it can be really tempting to sort of like have those people as being like the people you rely on emotionally but often like a much better way to sort of manage that kind of emotional labor I say this who had (laughs) as someone who had unmedicated depression for a very long time and so needed to do this a lot Having people from different groups, from different backgrounds, uh, who won't all be going through the same thing at once mm. um, really helps you balance that. I think also before you, like, dump on someone, particularly surrounding, like, really big, like, life stuff, um, check in with them first. Be like, hey, I want to talk to you about something. It's kind of heavy. Are you okay with that? Um, Hmm. and that's a really good way to just like give someone kind of the opportunity to tap out and say, actually, I'm kind of in a bad place right now. Having said that, that's also really difficult to do. (laughs) And I've definitely been the person who's been like, yeah, no, I'm fine. You can definitely talk to me. And then be like, I was not fine. (laughs) This was very bad. I'm so sorry. I need to lie down now. (laughs) Um, and like, I mean, the best thing you can do for your friends is to let them know that you care about them and their well-being. And this will change from person to person. Like some people like mm. just being told straight up, I do. Hello. As I've mentioned <laughs> twice already in this episode, I am an autistic. Um, <laughs> please just say things to me because I cannot read your mind. But <laughs> some people rep- will prefer things like baking cookies. And, you know, there's um this idea about the languages of love and like all yeah, these different things. Yeah, I was just things. thinking about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So like being aware of the kind of like languages of love that your friends speak and communicate in and just like letting them know that you care about them 
will help open the doors to more frank and direct communication surrounding things like um, emotional labour. I think that's that's a lovely way to end the episode. <laughs> Thank you. Be nice to mm. your friends, everyone. <laughs> yeah, and especially like the languages of love thing is brought up a lot um, in the context of romantic relationships. And I, I was literally thinking this as you were saying it, how we really need to apply it to like platonic ones as well. And really any relationship to not necessarily especially if you're in like a more professional relationship not necessarily to communicate love but even to like you can perhaps call it languages of respect languages of uh i don't know like mutual affection so not everyone might know exactly what these are but essentially yes. it's the idea that sort of we have five different ways of like potentially communicating how we feel and one of them is words of affirmation which is saying stuff like i love you you mean a lot to me this is really important um one of them is quality time so like someone spending quality time with you that's like that's one of mine when someone blocks out time to spend time with me that is the most important Mm -hmm. thing to me and when i block out time to spend with someone else that is a big commitment that i've made essentially Mm -hmm. um receiving gifts so if someone buys something for you um if you buy something for someone else or if you make something, a meaningful or thoughtful present is also very good. Uh, Acts of service. So cleaning the house, (laughs) but but also things like um, just helping people um, doing things together, doing someone a favor. Like that's really important. And then finally physical touch. So like if someone's a very huggy friend, this is probably one of theirs and hugging will be really important to them. And sort of, like, if you think about people who are important in your life, you'll probably have a pretty good idea of what, like, the key sort of languages of love, languages of respect that they use and that they sort of communicate in are. And if you make, like, a bit of an effort to communicate in those. So, like, I've had um, <laughs> the very first person I dated uh, mm-hmm. very much was the sort of, like, giving and receiving gifts type. And I just, like, I don't care. Like, mm. if it's something thoughtful and I like you, then I will appreciate it. But, like, I don't give a shit if you buy me a coffee or not. Like, <laughs> often, like, you'll just do, like, the one about kind of, like, I buy you a coffee, you buy me a coffee, this is cute, this is fine. Um, but, it, like, it doesn't mean anything special to me. It's just kind of, like, a thing that happens. Mm. Uh, whereas blocking out time is, like, just so important to me. And, like, um... Yeah, my, my two big ones are, like, uh, words of affirmation, quality time. So, like, when I had my, like, cute end of PhD lunch, as soon as my supervisor said, you're a good scientist, I started crying from happiness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's very clearly, like, how I sort of communicate. Do you, do you know what yours are, Serena? Um, I think a big one for me is just acts of service. Um, I don't – time is a really big one as well, yeah. But the acts of service is – I don't know. It's like a nice, non-verbal, non-physical, very like muted. I don't know. I personally like it because it doesn't demand anything back. It's like, hello, um, you've come home and the bed is made, and like that, and like we don't have to talk about it, and um, and it's just done, and it's nice, and I don't know. There's something about that that I quite like. I like acts of service. I like doing things for other people. I like um, doing people favors. I like making people's lives just like, you know, a little bit easier without them even maybe noticing or realizing. 
I don't know. There's something about that that I like. But you know, everyone has their own, and it's 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 nice to because when I first um, heard about this, it was really nice because I was reminded of like the other quote unquote love languages that I would often forget, mm. um, like the gifts thing for me. I forget all the time, <laughs> um, but it means a lot to some other people. So it's it's good thing to like remind myself that there are other ways that people um, understand and communicate affection, love, and respect. So yeah, yeah, and just sort of it helps you have words to describe how to be more conscious of other people's feelings. If that makes sense, so like. Mm you can know that someone likes gifts, but the thought their language of love is, like, giving gifts, like, that's really sort of, like, a key thing that you can be like, that is stamped on my brain now. I got that. Never <laughs> going to forget that again. Yeah. So, yeah. cute note to end on. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. This has been Things of Interest. Uh, I have been Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. We have talked about a lot of stuff from unions to the history of the wage gap to emotional labour. And the theme for this episode was really sort of that underlying emotional labour that often goes into our friendships, our relationships, um, our workplaces, sometimes without noticing, but eventually you always kind of feel the strain if you're doing a lot of it and not really getting any sort of support or reciprocation for that. Hopefully you heard something you identified with um, and that last cute little bit might be helpful in your life to sort of help conceptualize friendships and relationships and to start make, like, making your life a perfect life. That's the goal of this podcast, probably. <laughs> we have a lot of goals here. One of them is helping you live your best life. You can find us online. We're at thingsofinterest.co. We're on Facebook called Things of Interest and on Twitter at Casting Interest. And of course, if you have thoughts questions, comments, concerns, just want to chat, you can email us at castinginterest at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, on Podcast Addict, probably on Overcast. Uh, there are a lot Pretty of places. Pretty much everywhere. Yeah, there are a lot of places you can get podcasts and you can find us on most of them. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode or enjoy the show in general, please leave us a review. We really like reading them. Um, and we like to know how you're feeling. How are you doing? <laughs> Let <laughs> us know. We care. All right. Um, so as always, uh, stay interesting. And we'll see you next time. See ya.